0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 60, Psalm 60, if you need a Bible, there's one under a chair in the row in front of you, and open that up, page 607 will make it easy to find, Psalm 60. What is the only hope for the United States of America? Christ alone, Christ alone. Where is salvation found for the United States of America? In Christ alone. Is that a hope only for our nation? What is the only hope of any nation, any people, any tribe, any family? In Christ alone. What is the only hope of any person who's ever lived? Where is salvation found? I mean, you guys are well-trained. Now, if I, th- if I was a smart aleck, I'd throw in one that didn't have that and see how many of you would say the wrong answer, right? That's what you do to your kids, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then you throw in the, something that has to do with the Bible. And they, Jesus, nope, that's the Bible, all right, or vice versa. Christ alone. That's why we're here. We're here because of Christ. And we're here because of Christ alone. Before we dig into our passage this morning, let's pray together. Lord, we have no other place to turn, we have no other hope, we have no other salvation, so we pray at this time that you would meet with us, that you would speak through your spirit to us through your word, apply it to the situations that they live in, apply it to their very lives, and we need your help in that, we cannot do it without you, we are desperate for your help. And so we ask for it, and we ask for it in your son's name. Amen. If someone could go get me a glass of water, that would be, it's almost always here. Alan's not here today, so and this is like the one day I need it more than ever because <clears throat> I'm a little raspy. I sang too loud. I'm sorry. Hopefully they turn me down out there. Um, we're in Psalm 60, so open up your Bible. You're there. Let's read it together. I'll read, you follow along. To the choirmaster, according to Shushan Eduth, a miktam of David, for instruction, when he strove from Aram Naharaim, and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down twelve thousand of Edom in the valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defences. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. This is God's divine revelation. This is God's word of encouragement to us this morning. May we listen to it. This is another congregational psalm. We've had a bunch of them in a row. It's given to the choir master. This is another golden psalm, a mictum of David. We're not sure exactly what that means. Maybe it's more precious in some sense. But now we have a change in theme or a change in tune from the last, I believe it's last three psalms, last three psalms we had, do not destroy, but now it is according to Shushan, Shushan Eduth. And the problem with all these names is I never read it out loud, and then I, I get up here and I'm like, oh no, I didn't read it out loud, and I'm sitting here in the fly. Usually when I do a lot of names, I, I plan ahead. So I'm not saying these are the proper pronunciations, but uh, Shushan Eduth. And that uh, could be uh, the tune, it could be a theme, there's not a lot of information there uh, for us in the, in the context it was written, they would know. But it is a teaching psalm because it's given for instruction. And so it's, it's really appropriate that today we will open it up and not just sing it, but we will talk about it, we will use it for instruction this morning. And again, we are blessed with the specific setting given. When he strove with Aram Naharaim. again, I don't know how to say that and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. You can find this account in 2 Samuel 8, uh, verses 3, and then also 13. He kind of combines these two things. Also, it's given in 1 Chronicles 18, 3 and 12. And there's nothing really significant about this setting. In fact, if if you were to read through these passages, and some of you have, now through the Bible reading challenge, you'd be like, you just probably just read right past it. There's nothing significant that happens here. This is just one snapshot of David's life and and the wars and the battles that he fought. And uh, there's nothing significant, but it is the setting for this psalm. And so, uh, Charles Spurgeon gives a brief overview where he says the combined Aramean tribes sought to overcome Israel, but were soundly defeated. And Joab Joab had been engaged in another region, and the enemies of Israel took advantage of his absence. But on his return with Abishai, the fortunes of war were changed and there's a victory there. And again, it's interesting at reading through the context of, of the setting, you don't see Israel being defeated uh, right before this or after it. And so David's uh, concern at the beginning of the psalm seems misplaced, but we'll see if we can understand what, what the context is. Now, although the, the theme has changed, I still believe contextually it, it does fit with the previous three Psalms. So you got to be careful in the Psalms at thinking that every chapter or every song follows the song before it in theme. It's not like that. It's it's a song book. And if you were to open a hymn book, uh, you have different themes usually put together, but sometimes the theme changes and they don't tell you. We went from a song of comfort to a song of, of, of praise or a song of encouragement or a song of, of repentance. So it's just kind of go through it and you're like, oh, that's what that song's about. So that does happen, but here I do think there is a context that continues. The last three Psalms were dealing with David's enemies, and in this Psalm we still have foes present. So there's a, a continually continued theme of, of enemies. But this time it is the enemies of the nation and not personal enemies. So there's a change there's enemies, but now it's gone from personal to corporate. There is still a desperate desire for salvation, so he prays and cries out for salvation, but this time, it is national, not personal salvation. So salvation is still the theme, but he's, he's, he's not focused on himself being saved from his personal enemies, he's focused on the nation being saved from their enemies. So it's gone from personal to corporate, that's, that's the perspective. Yet the biggest change overall is the main focus of the prayer. The primary focus of David's prayer is internal on Israel's need of repentance and secondarily, on Israel's need for deliverance. And he ties those two things together. Deliverance is dependent on repentance. But he starts with repentance, and the main aspect of his prayer is a prayer of repentance, with salvation being in deliverance as the outcome. Where before, in his own prayers, he was more focused on deliverance or on the enemies being defeated. It was more about victory. This is more about repentance. Repentance. And in light of that i believe it's the perfect psalm for us to study at this very moment in our own national history and in our own personal history the circumstances of the midterm elections on tuesday uh, i think this fits perfectly and i didn't plan that out so this is this is god's divine providence and i believe in light of that we need to hear from god today so that we can be prepared and uh, we should have been hearing from him for a long time before this but uh, again the two days away this is i believe very appropriate And uh, practical for us. So the first thing I want to look at is verses 1 through 5. David's prayer for national repentance. David's prayer for national repentance. What's interesting is if you look at 57, 58, and 59, you see a lot of personal pronouns, the personal pronouns of I or me. But now in this psalm, the pronouns have changed to plural pronouns, us. So you can just look through how many times the word us. You don't see David focused on himself, but on the nation. And it's very clear in the very language. And why do we need repentance? Well, the situation in Israel demands it. God's judging them in anger. God's judgment in anger is the reason they need to repent. So here's the circumstances, the situation. God has rejected Israel and broken down their defenses. God has been angry, and in his anger, he has shaken the land, torn it apart, and opened breaches in their walls. So when you have breaches in the wall, the enemy just comes pouring in. That's the metaphor there. And the end result is that the nation of Israel totters. In verse 2, it totters. Now, the word totters should ring a bell if you were here last week, because in Psalm 59, 11, David had prayed to God to make his enemies totter. But now it's not the enemies of God who are tottering. It's the nation of Israel, God's people, who are tottering. I talked about that last week, about the, the situation of our own nation in light of that. Now, if you just look at these first couple of verses, you'll see it is a terrible situation. God has made his people see hard things. And he has caused them to stumble around in a drunken stupor. Into verse 3. So they are staggering like a drunk staggers from too much wine. And that's a striking description of people who are facing terrible circumstances, terrible situations, and making unbelievably foolish decisions at the same time. So you might be aware from personal experience or personally or from watching others that people who are drunk don't make the best decisions. They make very foolish decisions. And this is the situation we're at. They are staggering in the sense of tottering, but they're also making foolish decisions that goes together. So Charles Spurgeon gives again a brief overview of the situation in Israel at this time. Before the days of Saul, Israel had been brought very low. During his government, it had suffered from internal strife and his reign was closed by an overwhelming disaster at Gilboa. So if you remember how Saul's kingdom ended they were defeated by the Philistines Saul and his son is are killed and and their bodies are taken away by the enemy and there's an utter resounding defeat of Israel so his his kingdom starts well Saul and and as it goes it just deteriorates for 40 years and at the end it's in a miserable condition and that's because Saul was a king like the people wanted Saul was the kind of king the people voted for now did they vote no. But he's the kind of king they wanted. He was the people's king. He was taller than everyone else. He was the most handsome man. of it. He was the consummate politician. And God gave them what they wanted and showed them how miserable that would be. That's the first king. And now he is, he's anointed a king. And if you know how David is most described or best described, a man after his own heart. Saul had no heart for God. David had a whole heart for God. His son Solomon had half a heart. That's one way to think about that. And you can see the ways the kingdoms go. And so you have that idea where where David, a man after his own heart, is there. But at the end of Saul's reign, we're in a terrible situation. So Spurgeon goes on to say, David found himself a possessor of a tottering throne, troubled with the double evil of faction at home and invasion from abroad. Because you remember when David began to reign in Jerusalem over Judah, he did not reign over the northern tribes yet. So he only reigned for a certain period. So there was still division in the kingdom. They were following. Other people were following uh, Saul's son. So there's, there's, there's factions from within, invasion from without. And don't forget, we even talked about this in one of the Psalms. The priest had been murdered by Saul. And so then the worst men had been put in office. The military power had been broken by the Philistines. And the civil authority had grown despicable through insurrections and internal contests. How's that sound? Sound like fun? That's the situation that David inherits when he takes the throne. That's what he's talking about here. Sometimes when we read through uh, the Old Testament history, we don't realize really, we don't put into context how bad it was under Saul at the end of his reign because he starts well, has victories, establishes a pretty consistent throne, but then it's just a deterioration. And if you remember, right at the end, before he goes and and dies in battle, he goes to the witch at Endor and and has Samuel brought up from the dead to talk to. I mean, things are, it's just bad all around. He'd killed the priests. All these things are happening. Now, as you look at that situation as described, does, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like where we are, are the defenses of our nation broken down? Although we don't see that in a physical sense, is it not blatantly obvious in a moral cultural sense? Are we a nation like the nation of Israel at that time, tottering? I believe we're unbelievably weak as a nation. We are defenseless to godless ideologies. And I think you see it in every sphere of society, from the bottom up and from the top down. Are we not horribly divided? torn apart morally, torn apart politically? You know, are, we, are there not greater divisions and strife, internal strife as a nation than we've seen in quite a while? I, I hate to uh, say that this is the worst it's ever been in America because I'm only 48 years old. And even if I was 148, I wouldn't have seen all the years of America. So be careful at making these broad statements and, and make sure you understand as best you can your time and its situation. Because the darkest time is always the dark you're in. That doesn't mean it's the darkest it's ever been. So be careful at at catastrophizing the situation or making it worse than it is. But but I ask, are we not tottering? Are we not witnessing very hard things? Doesn't it feel like we're surrounded by so many people drunk out of their minds, making absolutely insane decisions? but the consequences are far worse than waking up the next day with a splitting headache and an unexplainable tattoo. (laughs) What will the national regret be when we wake up to the fact that an entire generation, over 60 million children are missing, as well as body parts missing from mutilation surgeries, as well as all of the division of marriage from morality, all the division of children separated from their parents through IVF and other things. I mean, it goes on and on. The consequences for our nation will be felt in 40 to 80 years. We are only beginning to see the consequences. We're seeing the consequences from 40 years ago. That's how bad it is. But we will not see the consequences for our time. We are in a terrible situation. So when we read the Scripture... We need to understand, is this a situation like we're facing? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. I believe uh, it, it very much is. What kind of national drunkenness is this? This is God's judgment. We are under God's judgment. We are so prone as Christians to begin to think that if such and such happens, God will judge us. The fact is, He's been judging us and is judging us for a lot of things that have already happened. And sometimes the next bad thing that happens is a result of God's already judgment upon us. So, you think it's as bad as it can get? Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. Now, if we don't see the situation clearly, who will? If God's people who have God's word, who can look at these things and look through the lens of the truth of Scripture, if we don't see the situation clearly, who will? Are we surprised that, that people who don't know God, who reject God, who don't trust in God, who don't have the spirit of God, who don't believe in the word of God, are we surprised when they don't see it clearly? No, we shouldn't be surprised at all. They, they don't have the God who gives wisdom. They don't have the truth. They're not looking at the truth. But if we don't, who will? Think about it in the nation of Israel when the priests didn't understand it. When the kings don't understand it. When the, when the rulers, when they don't get it, how, how does that play out for the people? Now, I want to give what I would call a glimmer of hope, okay, like a tiny dot of a flashlight at the end of a very dark tunnel, okay? Here's the hope. Here's the hope in understanding how Psalm 60 works. There is mercy in making it to this point. So if we do see the situation clearly, if God's people our understanding, if God's people, verse three, see hard things, If they see the nation staggering as a drunk man, if we wake up and see it, then what is about to happen in Psalm 60? What's about to happen in the nation of Israel? Because people are waking up to the truth. There's about to be a revival, there's about to be a change, there's about to be God's mercy poured out in the nation based upon the rule of King David. So the situation is really bad, but as God's people see hard things and as they see the situation clearly and as they turn to their King David to lead them, a man after God's own heart, the situation does radically improve in a short period of time. That's mercy. That's grace. So many times God in his judgment brings us low, brings us to the end of ourselves so that we will cry out to him and in his mercy he hears. That's the good news of the book of Judges. The bad news is the whole cycle that they had to keep going through. The good news is when they repented and turned to him, what did he do? He delivered. So so there's there's the good, you have to see both sides because I'm not just painting a hopeless, despairing picture where we just go out here and weep and wail and go home and uh, find the bunker and go pull the the thing over our head and just wait for the world world to fall apart. That is not what Psalm 60 is calling us to do. So I believe... That when the situation reaches its breaking point and God's people wake up, God is about to act. Is that now? I'm no prophet. (laughs) I just want to look at Psalm 16 and understand it. So what does David do in light of the situation? David's plea. He says and cries out, grant repentance. In light of the situation, David pleads with God to grant repentance. He says, oh, restore us. The end of verse one. Restore us. Oh, repair us, repair the breaches. On what basis would God restore and repair this nation? If God's angry judgment is because of sin, then God's people can't just ask for the judgment to be lifted while the rebellious sinfulness remains. We can't be like the child in the home who is disobeying, rebelling against parents, the parents bring the hammer, they crack down, they bring the punishment, and the child says, oh, it's too much. Please have mercy. While continuing to rebel and not obey. The only thing that grants mercy, the only thing that brings any uh, uh, resolve to the situation begins with repentance. So there's no repairing, there's no restoring without repentance. Though he doesn't say it, that's there. It should be understood. Repair us, based upon our repentance. Restore us based upon our repentance. So when he cries out to God to repair us, he's crying out to God to bring revival in the repentance of his people. We cry out to God to deliver us as a nation to save us. We must either state it explicitly or understand it implicitly that we must repent. This nation must repent. The people must repent. And apart from repentance and apart from turning to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, there will be no ultimate salvation to America. We, of all people, have to see that. So if we're looking for a conservative resurgence, if we're looking for a return to the morality of the 1950s or the 1970s or even the 1990s, we understand that we're looking to the wrong thing and we're looking to the wrong place. We need a revival of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and people to repent. This must be our constant prayer, Lord, please grant repentance. So we have to understand that everything flows out of the foundation of right worship. You shall have no other gods before me. That was given to a nation, that was given to a people. And as long as this nation has other gods before the one true God, there is no hope, ultimately. And I don't care what your color is, red or blue, or if you, I don't know, what color is independent, pink? I don't know, purple? Uh, Whatever. Um, I don't care what what color you are, in the sense of political color, I, I don't care what Uh, Whether you call yourself conservative or progressive, I don't care about any of those things because without Christ, none of it matters in the end in the sense of recovering what we might have or what we even kind of used to have or what we could have. The gospel is our only hope. Now, just in case anybody misunderstands me, does that mean we just go uh, on Tuesday and we go stand outside the polling and preach the gospel? Well, you could do that, and, and if you stay far enough away, you could do it probably without any problem, and and great, but also go in and cast your vote. Okay, so those things are not uh, are not inconsistent. Okay, there might be a time when, when casting your vote is is not to be done. So, but but uh, but do both. Um, letter C, God's mercy for those who fear Him. God's mercy for those who fear Him. It sounds one through three are just devastating, just terrible. But notice verse 4 shows us God's mercy for those who fear him. So you have done these things, and also you have done this other thing. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. There is a banner to run to. There is a flag to rally around. Those who fear God have an opportunity at this time of judgment And the banner in the context of Psalm 60, the immediate context, is the banner of David's government. David's banner, a man after God's own heart, a man who loves God, serves God, his, his banner is now flying over, there was no castle, but just take the metaphor, over the castle in Jerusalem. And it calls all the people who fear God to run to the castle to be on King David's side. There's a banner and so now those who fear you can flee to the banner. So the beloved ones may be delivered. Salvation comes through King David. He is there as God's man to deliver the nation from their trouble, troubles and situations. Now, is that, a, is that a religious salvation? Is that an eternal security? No, no, it's a national salvation in the good King David, in the righteous king. Is anyone figuring out how that applies today? Are you able to make that con- without me even saying, are you able to make the con- connection between King David and the greater King David? Are you able to make the connection between a banner flies over the, 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 the Zion and it's David's banner and God's people flee to that banner and rally around that banner and the day that we live in where King Jesus' banner flies over the nation, whether they see it or not, and we as God's people run to that banner, we flee to Jesus Christ, and we rally around Christ in light of the situation. There it is. There's the the true understanding of the interpretation of the text and its application to today. King David was a king after God's own heart. He was a great king. He was a righteous king. He was a wonderful king, and he was also a failed king. But the better David rules and reigns today, and he rules and reigns as King David, the king who was sinless and is sinless. The king who won the victory over death, over sin, over hell on our behalf. This is our king. And those who fear him should do what at this time of tottering? We should run to Christ and rally around his banner. And I'm not talking about the flag, the Christian flag that sits in the old auditorium. I'm not talking about that banner. I'm not talking about go grab the Christian flag and march down the streets of Owasso calling people to rally around that flag. As much as it might represent good things, that's not the flag we rally around. We rally around Jesus Christ. His banner over me is love in the sense that the banner over me is Christ himself. So David's far-off grandson is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the greater banner. So Isaiah tells us about this in Isaiah 11 verse 10. And that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal as a banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's not just for Israel any longer. In that day, it will be for all the peoples. The banner over Israel, the banner over Jerusalem, calls all nations, all people, all tribes, to flee to that banner, to flee to the one who has salvation. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, in in the new covenant, we proclaim that message to all people. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, and we preach that to all people. The gospel goes out to all nations, to everyone. We are to disciple the nations, every king, every president, every person, every, every ruler. We disciple them and everyone underneath them. We call them to Christ. And even in times of judgment, God is a God of mercy. So at this time of his judgment on Israel, he still provides a banner. He provides something to flee to. God always gives mercy for his people in times of judgment. So give, uh, rest assured and have that confidence in God that if he continues to bring judgment on the United States of America, he will meet your needs. He will take care of you. There's a banner to flee to. Run to Christ. And so we don't have to fear as those who have no hope. And that's a particular blessing for those who've lost loved ones, but it applies to other situations. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We don't look at the situation as those who have no hope. We have Christ, and therefore we always have hope. We always have hope. We don't have to despair. So we run to Christ to be delivered. We run to Christ for salvation. And this is an escape that he provides for all who fear him, all who will run to him. We run to Christ because he's our only hope. Only he can answer us. We turn to Christ for personal salvation based on personal repentance. So the good news of the gospel is that everyone who fears God, everyone who fears the judgment of God, everyone who recognizes that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, who will repent of that sin and turn to Christ, will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved saved. All who flee to him as a fortress, all who run to him to save them will be saved. And we preach that personal gospel, the personal salvation, and we preach it because it's true, and we preach it because every man, woman, and child needs to hear it. But that's not the salvation that David's preaching about. So what happens is, if we read this psalm in light of personal salvation, personal deliverance, and especially personal deliverance from sin, we've missed the main point. We've preached the application as the point, and that's bad preaching. So the, the main point is salvation for a nation who repents. The application for us is personal salvation if you repent. So I call every person here individually to repent of their sin and turn to Christ and be saved. And that's a message we preach every Sunday. And yet the point of this passage is, as a people, as a nation, what must we do if we want to be saved? As a nation, we must repent. As a people, we must repent. And David is here talking about corporate repentance, corporate deliverance, corporate salvation. We have to understand the Scripture in its context. So national repentance brings national deliverance. It is only by God's right hand that we will be saved. And if God doesn't answer us by granting repentance, there is no hope for this nation. Without turning to Christ, there is no hope. One vote, one red wave, even one red tsunami will not suffice. We vote, of course we vote, because as a people, we have a voice. We've been given a voice. We have an opportunity to say no to a terrible wickedness in our state. Yet, even if by God's grace, the people vote no on Proposition 3, that doesn't mean that the nation or the state has repented. That doesn't mean that cultural victory for biblical morality can be claimed. Until there's a national revival, a national turning to Christ, all we could say is that God has given us a reprieve. God would be giving us a little more time to preach the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So we pray and we plead for God to have Proposition 3 voted down. But if that happens, don't pack up your your armor, pack up your weapons, and go home and claim victory. It's not over because the, the state has not repented not repentant. There's, there's, there's not an overwhelming uh, revival of the gospel in our state. So it's only a reprieve. If we take the moment and say victory is ours, then we've missed the moment because the moment is if God it would be so gracious as to grant us a reprieve, we must march forward and take ground for the gospel in preaching it everywhere in our culture, everywhere in our society, and not just in our church houses. What does that look like? I don't have all the answers. I, I barely have any answers. I got a lot of questions, but we, we've got we've to be thinking that way. So what's God's answer to David's prayer? Verses six through eight. What's amazing is God answers. We see his answer. He speaks his answer, and it's in the song. God has spoken in his holiness. And if you have an ESV, then, or I think the New American Standard, maybe the NIV have quotes. It's not as clear in the King James, or maybe the New King James, that this is... Uh, Understood as a a quote from God. But here's God's answer. And the answer is this David will be victorious. The nation will be victorious. Everything he says in 6 through 8 is victory. He will deliver, he will save. All these places will be part of David's kingdom. He will rule over them as a helmet, as a scepter, all these great things. But notice verse 8 the enemies will be made a wash basin. Moab will be a pot to wash his feet in. Edom will lick his boots. He will shout in triumph over Philistia. This is, this is domination of the enemy. So there's victory for the nation, and that victory looks like positive in one sense, and also the triumph over the enemies in another sense. This is God's promise to David. God has spoken in his holiness. Can you count on it if God speaks? Take it to the bank. David's going to win. David knew it. God has spoken to him. What a great thing. Has God spoken to us like that? Not to our particular situation. No, not to our exact situation. We don't have an answer from God or a promise from God in light of what's going to happen on Tuesday or what's going to happen in the next 40 years as a nation. We don't have that promise. So David had something we don't have. But I want you to notice David's response. David has this, this promise given, yet he is confused. Verse nine, he has questions. You think after God spoke that he would just be able to rejoice and say victory is ours, but he has questions. He says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? I mean, you don't go out with our armies any longer. So how could they have victory if they've been rejected? How will this come about if God doesn't go out with them? If God doesn't lead them out to victory, how could they win since God has abandoned the people's army. And he has those questions, and then he tells us why he's asking those in light of what God has promised. Verse 11, vain is the salvation of man. Grant us help because trusting in man is empty and useless. So what he's saying is he's not doubting God's promise He's just saying, in light of how bad it's been, in light of your promise, you have to go with us. You have to lead us. The only deliverance we have is not even in the promise of God, but in the presence of God, bringing active victory for the people of God. There is no help or salvation to be found in mankind. Do we know that? It is vain to trust in mankind. It is absolutely pointless, absolute nonsense to put our trust in mankind for anything, especially politicians. Now, I should have had an amen with that one. Or a preacher, brother. It should have been a response. It doesn't matter where you stand on anything. It is absolutely pointless, absolute nonsense to put our trust in mankind for anything, especially politicians. You guys are not charismatic enough. you got to practice on that stuff, all right? <laughs> I, I served that one up. That was, like, was like on the tee. Right? You know, it was a T a tee ball. It's easy, that's an easy one to hit. It wasn't even a fastball. It wasn't even a curve. It is vain. Isaiah 35, verse 6. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. And a king of Israel, a king of Judah, God's kings who are supposed to rule for God. Who did they lean on? Who did they trust in? They trusted in Pharaoh, and he pierced their hand. We don't trust in mankind. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some trust in weapons of war, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that us? Is that us? Have we recognized that ultimate hope, ultimate victory, none of it will come from mankind at all? So if you are caught up in political fervor over any candidate at any time and you think this is the candidate who will bring us salvation, this is the candidate who will deliver us, that candidate is set up for one of the greatest falls known to man because pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And so when people begin to trust in politicians as Messiah, and then the politician begins to trust that the people understand he's Messiah, and he begins to think he's a Messiah, he's doomed for failure, destruction. And of all people, God's people cannot be this foolish. And if God's people are this foolish, then judgment is truly fallen, has it not? All right, we're going to move on (laughs) before I get more too particular. (laughs) Letter B, God is the only one who gives victory over our enemies. Grant us help against the foe. Vain is the salvation of man. Contrast, verse 12, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you don't get anything else from the Old Testament, you must get this. God always brings the victory, and if he doesn't show up, there's always defeat. It doesn't matter if there's 300, 30,000, 300,000 against or for. If God is not giving victory, you will always lose. And if God chooses to give victory, you don't even have to show up. Seriously. I mean, you you can have 300 with pitchers and torches and a shout. You can march around a city and just yell at the walls and they fall down. Or you can just stay in Jerusalem starving to death and God delivers and he sends out the people who can't even get in the city. He sends out that, what are those people? You know who I'm talking about. The lepers, thank you. Thank you for all your help. You're very good. All the lepers out and 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 the camp is empty. They've all fled. Hundreds of thousands have just gotten scared in the night and left and nobody knows it. They're starving in the city. And God doesn't even send lepers to win. He just does it all and the lepers show up. God can do amazing and abundant and crazy things in a heartbeat when he chooses to get the victory. And we must know that. He's the only one who gives the victory. So what's more important, prayer or voting? Prayer. Does that mean you don't vote? No. See how that goes together? What's more important, God knocking down the walls of Jericho or you marching around them? Yes, because he told you to march around them and he'd knock them down. So however God decides to give victory, he provides the way. Sometimes he provides the way and he uses mankind. Other times he does it all on his own. But we must be faithful to do what God has called us to do. But while we're faithful, we don't trust in us. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans 8.31, I'm going to flip the the application. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All of that promise is spiritual. Spiritual enemies, spiritual victory. And I'm going to use that truth as an application to the physical. Notice the difference. Many times we take the physical promises and we apply them to spiritual wrongly or, or make that the main thing. I'm taking a spiritual promise and I'm going to apply it physically. If God is on a nation's side, who can stand against it? That's, that's the physical picture of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And that, that brings spiritual promises to all God's people. There is no enemy, spiritual, Satan, death, disease, uh, uh, all these things, they cannot stand against us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And yet that applies physically. If God is on the side of a nation, they will always win. When God shows up, you don't have to be good at anything. You have to be faithful. And I'll take another promise that is spiritual, and I will apply it physically. Physically. Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Do you know the context of Matthew 19, 26? Well, can a rich man make it through the eye of a needle? No, nope. a rich man can't make it through the eye of a needle, but God can save even rich people, can he? Because with God, all things are possible. So if God can save a rich man, which is harder to do than a camel going through the eye of a needle, can he save a nation? With God, all things are possible. It's whether God wants to or not. It's whether there are people turning to Christ, depending on him and trusting in him. I don't know the outcome of any of these things. And so our, our, our prayer is to pray for right things, pray for good things, and that starts with praying for repentance. Praying for personal repentance, corporate repentance as a church, corporate repentance as God's people. If God's people aren't doing these things, why would God save any nation? And We have, we have sinned. We have failed. We are not doing what God has called us to do. The reason America is where it is at is because the church is where it is at, and the church is where it is at because Christians are where they are at. And if we don't fix the individual Christian and the individual Christian family and then the individual churches, then none of this stuff will matter in the nation in the long run. Like every eight years, yes, we won great victory. It's all going to turn around eight years later. It's a terrible thing. It didn't turn around. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? I mean, I'm 48. Maybe, maybe I'm learning. Some of you are like 68. You should be way ahead of me. Some of you are 88, Fred? No. <laughs> Fred really knows. I should have quit picking on Fred. In conclusion, Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Run to him and be saved today. Run to him and be saved today. This is what we're going to celebrate around the Lord's table in just a minute, the salvation found in Christ. And Christian, if you've been saved, personal salvation, personal repentance, personal deliverance by the Lord Jesus Christ, pray for God to grant restoration and repair to this nation. Repent of your sin and trust in him alone to save our nation. We pray, we repent, and we trust ask the men to come to serve the Lord's table. Table, And we gather around the Lord's table because it's a picture of the salvation. I didn't hold that right. Let me grab that again a little bit farther down. There we go. It's a living picture of the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. The broken body and the shed blood are pictured in the elements of the table. And they picture an utter dependence on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We eat and we drink because it's a picture of sustenance. If you do not eat and drink physically, you will die. If you do not eat and drink of Jesus Christ, you will die spiritually. And you can weigh 500 pounds or weigh 50 and you will die spiritually. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, you must eat and drink of me. And it really threw people off, but he was saying you must depend completely on me for your salvation. That's what it is. And none of us come in here starving. None of us probably are thirsty besides me. And so we're not here to, to sustain our hunger or our thirst physically. We're here to show our dependence on Christ spiritually through a physical act. We are trusting in Christ alone for everything. And when you take that little bit of cracker and you drink that little bit of the fruit of the vine, you are saying, I am depending. It, it, it's just it's it's symbolic, but it's a statement of faith. Other people can see you do it, and they will believe, if they're listening to me right now, this is what you mean. So don't just do this because every month we do this. Do it because this is what you believe. This is your statement of faith. You're not saying a word. You're doing the actions. And this is a demonstration of our faith, and it's a blessing that God gives by grace, and it strengthens us. It strengthens us to take our faith, our living faith, our walk of faith outside these four walls into a world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ and seeks to destroy him and his ways. And it causes us to live boldly in light of that because we will stand and he is our sustenance, he is our strength, and we've shown it here and it emboldens us and strengthens us and gives us grace for out there. If we can't do it here, how will we ever do it there? So we do it here because it's wonderful and beautiful and, and, and easy. But by God's grace, it strengthens us to live that way out there. And that's what we need to do. So I want you to have the right mindset. And that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, is to examine yourself, to prepare yourself, so that when you do the activity, you mean it. And it comes from a heart of belief and faith and an outward action. So let's prepare our hearts.